Welcome to Biohackers Lab, a place where we talk to smart people who are figuring out how to improve health in interesting ways. Join us to discover how you can biohack your life, your body, starting today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Biohackers Lab. I'm your host, Gary Kerwin, and on today's episode, I have Rafi Sutoli. Rafi has a MSc in Molecular Biology and is a PhD candidate in Neuroscience. He is also a co-founder of Nutrita, the world's first low-carb and keto food search engine. Rafi, thanks so much for coming on for an episode for today. Hi, Gary. It's a pleasure to be here. So I uh, got to see your new venture, which is interesting, which I introduced Nutrita. And um, just following the the sort of the research path there, um, another good testimony I saw was that it got featured on Product Hunt. And even the, the founder of Product Hunt thought your uh, your new venture was very interesting and said, very well done. So um, I think we're going to learn lots about the why you created a food search engine and what are low carb and ketogenic foods. Yeah, that was a really nice, uh, really nice surprise to see the uh, uh, the founder of Product Hunt uh, leave us a, a nice comment. That was very encouraging. I didn't, I didn't know of Product Hunt before that. I have to admit, but uh, people told me it was a pretty big deal. So that's that was very encouraging for us. Oh, I definitely say so. I mean, that Ryan guy who started Product Hunt, he, I don't know how many thousands or tens of thousands of things he's he's seen. So for him to leave a comment like that, I think is a is a good testimonial to what you're you're making here. So my first question for you then is, um, why did you decide to create a low-carb or keto food search engine in the first place? Well, I think like many things in life, uh, projects often uh, are born out of frustration or out of problems that we don't see solutions uh, for. And in my case, I'm uh, very much into science and nutrition, and it's my passion and, and my career. And you're always looking up foods when you're comparing them to other foods and you're trying to learn about how this food is likely to affect you. And I just found that most of the options that were available to, to people were pretty complicated. They weren't very much, uh, they weren't standardized. The scoring system, whether that was for, you know, nutrients or, you know, vitamins, minerals or whatever, I always find it sort of confusing. And, you know, that's, that's for someone who has a, a scientific background. So. When you think about what it must be like for someone who do doesn't have any scientific training, trying to understand what's in this food, how is it going to affect me? Well, I think a lot of people will have shared my frustration. So the idea was to bring uh, a database, a food search engine that had some scores, uh, a way of uh, teaching you about the food that was relevant to people doing keto and doing low carb. So the, the scores that we propose are things like the keto score. So how likely a food is to keep you in nutritional ketosis or to take you out of nutritional ketosis. And we also have the nutrient density score, which is a different way of assessing the, nu the nutritious aspects of a food. And then we have the insulin index, which is basically understanding how likely a food is to cause your body to secrete the hormone insulin, which is very important in terms of the body responses that you get after eating a certain food. And that's going to affect uh, ev pretty much everything in your body. That's why it's such an important uh, index to use when we consider which foods are, are best for us. So the idea was to... Um, really get those scores together and give people a, a meaningful overview of their food, not simply give them a laundry list of vitamins, minerals, and amino acids that they might even never have heard of and don't understand the relevance for. 
So we're starting to chip away at this problem of, of the complexity around food and try to simplify it so that, you know, your average uh, diabetic or person who wants to lose fat can get some meaningful information. Yeah, so that's what it looked like to me is that you have very um, broad numbers that are easy to understand. But then do you also give people the access to the, the nitty gritty, the fine details to say, right, if you're looking at an egg, these are the exact vitamins and minerals um, if you wanted to geek out a little bit more? Yeah, so we we love to to geek out the the people in our team that that we have uh, whether it's our coder and uh, uh, thomas or whether it's my co-founder eddie who has a background in finance we're very number driven and we love to geek out but we know it's important to actually you know also present the information a simple way so you can get a breakdown of the information it's not just these three keto scores so if you look up an egg you can you know click on the a search result for an egg, it'll bring up a view where you can get more details. So you can get the vitamin score, the uh, mineral score. So you can see each uh, mineral, how much it uh, affords you in terms of the daily value that you might need. So you can get into much more detail. So I think this is something that can be used for, you know, biohackers, for clinicians, doctors or someone who's you know pretty geeky but at the same time i think the the number one priority is clarity and really to make it actionable yeah and i think those three scores you mentioned in the beginning that's what's going to help people so you don't have to be a neuroscientist like yourself in training you can actually be hey i just want to go more ketogenic or low carb but i just need to generally know do these foods fall into that range and your simple scoring system at the top is going to give people that quick reference guide yeah, absolutely. That's that's the idea, and I'm sure, as you know, Gary, you've you've got lots of people asking, "Is this keto? Um, what will it do to my blood sugar? Is this nutrient dense?" And I think it can be it can it can be a bit frustrating for for coaches and doctors and clinicians who who may have these answers inside of them and, and they're obvious to them. But I think we have to remember that these are the basic questions people keep asking, and there's a reason. And I think we have to uh, sort of meet them where they stand. If they're trying to understand if something is ketogenic, we should be able to give them a clear answer and hopefully then have the opportunity to educate them further about something that can be technically ketogenic, but might not work in your diet or might not be nutritious. And I think that's the next step that we're trying to uh, bring people towards is really making smart choices overall, not simply, you know, is this keto, is this not? Although that is step one for many people. So you, like in this case, you could have something that is keto, but it's not nutrient dense. Right, exactly. I, I think the easiest example of that would be something like uh, olive oil, right? Olive oil, it's 100% fat. It's uh, perfectly ketogenic. I mean, if you have olive oil, it's not going to raise your insulin to any significant degree. It's not really going to shut off um, um, fat burning in any meaningful sense, but you can't just subsist on olive oil because you're missing all these other crucial aspects to good nutrition and which also helps support ketogenesis and all the enzymes that go into it. So it's, it's good to give clear answers, but like Einstein said, simple, but not too simple or, or something to that uh, effect. So yeah, I think uh, that's why we really, the nutrient density score, I'm sure we'll talk more about it is, is my personal favorite because it's the most 
uh, interesting one. How do you determine if a food is nutritious? And I think it's crucial to have that score accompany the keto scores in the insulin index for people so that they, they don't lose a big picture even when they're trying to maintain their specific goals. Well, let's jump into that one then because I do also want to get to the insulin index because that's something I, I don't see anyone else talking about. Um, mm -hmm. But before we get onto that, then let's, let's touch on how you come up with that nutrient density score. I mean, um, so if something is uh, 9 out of 10, how, what, what is 9 out of 10 versus uh, 5 out of 10? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so when when we so we decided to score it from one to ten for ease of simplicity. You know, we could have gone zero to hundred and and give more nuance, but we think for in terms of again of remaining actionable, um, we wanted to keep something simple. So the big difference is is the framework we use to determine our nutrient density is okay. If I were only eating this thing, how close would it get me to my complete nutrition? Meaning. Does it provide essential fatty acids? Does it provide essential amino acids? So the, that, the protein people will, will think of. And does it give me a sufficient amount of vitamins and minerals? And not only the total amounts, but also the ratios. So we know that a lot of systems in our body rely not only on certain vitamins and minerals, but a certain uh, balance of them. And this gets very complicated very fast because you've got dozens and dozens of each and there are so many different combinations that in truth, I think the science is actually still pretty young on what's nutritious and what isn't. Even the mere concept of nutrient density is a bit, it's not very well defined. Um, you could define it per weight of food or you could define it per calories and that will change the analysis that goes into it. So what we've tried to do is really stick with the basics. Uh, that means we take an evolutionary approach. We, say, we think, okay, what do humans need? And that goes back to the fatty acids, the amino acids. So our scores reflect that way of thinking. Uh, if a score is very nutrient dense in our database, like if we take uh, the example of salmon, it's a eight out of 10. So salmon has, you know, the essential uh, fatty acids. It has the complete range of amino acids, and it's got a pretty good whack of vitamins and minerals. So depending on the exact amounts, it's going to vary between 7, 8, 9, or 10. And salmon is a, is a great example for that. Now, something that's less nutrient-dense might have an exceptional range of vitamins and minerals, but it might not have the um, essential amino acids that you would need to maintain muscle and, and other important functions. So you people who will use our food search engine might notice that we uh, – our, our food search engine tends to prioritize foods that are more nutritionally complete. So animal-based foods, so whether that's liver or eggs or salmon or other things like that, they will tend to be more nutrient-dense than plants like kale, broccoli, carrots, uh, even beans, which are the sort of nutrient-dense uh, plants that people tend to, uh, to bring up. So we're, we're perfectly fine with people uh, having a range of, of foods. Not every food has to be a 9 out of 10. Uh, it's just to give them a good idea of what's really important and what's sort of optional and they can play around with. Is there any food that's 10 out of 10? Yes, I, I think we do. So I know eggs, we have about 9 out of 10. Um, our liver is around 9 out of 10. Uh, we have, I think we have some other, we have the avocado, which is also, uh, no, sorry, not the avocado. Um, let's see, we have, we have, 
I don't think I have a 10 out of 10 food on the top of my head, but the closest thing I have would be the, the eggs and the liver, which might not surprise many, many people, actually. And so that's what you're saying there, too, is that if someone had to live off a particular food uh, as the majority of their food, these nutrient-dense ones would be the start. And then you could get into the nuances and the if you needed a top-up of something particular, that's when you could look at, like, olive oil as you said if you needed more fat for ketosis or something yeah that's that's exactly right we we think that you know it's 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 like anything else you have to take care of the basics first and our scores should help reflect that so if people are trying to decide okay i need to make sure that um, i'm getting all my my essentials in um, the easiest way to do that is just to understand that animal foods tend to provide that but of course you might want a little more quantitative uh, information and want to see, well, should I, you know, go for the eggs because they have lots of choline. And I've heard that, you know, choline is great for people who have fatty liver. And that's such a common occurrence that it's, it's great that they can see how nutrient dense eggs are. Um, but yeah, they can, I think it's a, uh, it's a question of getting the basics right and understanding what's essential and then going from there. So this is going, this is not a macro calculator because a lot of people too will think they're thinking, oh, I just need X amount of carbs or fats or protein in a day. And this is going beyond that. Yeah. So the food search engine is really about scoring the food. So it's really sort of an open, open search that people can do. Um, but we, we actually have developed a calculator, but it's a very different macro calculator than what's uh, usually done. So if you want, I can go into how uh, the two complement each other. Yeah, sure. Because again, that's the kind of thing. Yeah. That's the uh, information I think people really need is that, okay, I've been told I need to eat a certain way for whatever reason, weight loss, health condition. Um, I'm hearing this macro thing. So should I be more, you know, X protein or X fat or, you know, percentage carb? But then, I'll, then the question always is, how do you make sure that you're staying healthy on those macros that you're doing? And that comes into the nutrient density part. Yeah, and, and this, this really brings up, um, uh, it's a very interesting question for me. I've had a lot of conversations with health coaches, doctors, and one of the things you'll hear often is just the, the, the minutiae that people get into and get stuck on is a, real, uh, is a real problem. And I don't think it's just a question of selection bias that the coaches and doctors tend to see people who are having problems. I don't think it's just that. I really do think that there's a lot of confusion about what matters and what's and what's a detail. So the food search engine will will be really helpful for the reasons we we outlined. But I think it's also important to realize that when you're starting out, uh, the nutrient density might not be the first thing in your mind when you're trying to say, okay, I'm going to lose some fat or control some blood sugar. Your first step is literally, what do I do today? Like, what do I go buy in the next few hours? And I think that's where a macro calculator is useful because it will give you a very broad overview of, okay, so I'm starting a low-carb or ketogenic diet. Clearly, there's going to be a, quite a bit of fat in it. And I need to have some idea of how much fat is, is in a ketogenic diet. So depending if you're in a fat loss phase or a weight maintenance phase, that percentage could, you know, uh, vary quite a bit. It could go from 60% to 80% of fat, 50% to 80% of fat. So what, what we propose, uh, that's why we developed the calculator, is to first give them a, a broad overview of what the diet is going to be like. So this is, your carbs are going to be extremely low. 
your protein is going to be you know decently high between 20 and, and, and more percent and then your fat is going to basically fill in fill in that gap and um, that's I think step one once they've understood the the sort of the limits of the macronutrients that they, they can afford on their on their particular diet then I think it's interesting to get into a bit more detail and say okay how are we going to make sure that you've covered your basics within those macronutrients? How are you going to ensure that uh, you're staying in ketosis despite your macros? Because we know this varies within, within, uh, for certain people. And then how do you make it nutrient dense? So it's like anything. If you're starting a fat loss project, right, this is a big deal for a lot of people. I think they have to take it step by step. So they have to get the, the macro distribution right. Then they have to make sure their nutrient density is on point. And, you know, and then they have to refine and, and go from there. So the idea for us was um, also with the calculators also born out of frustration because we see people getting the first advice they get is to calorie count. So you use a macro calculator and what are you told? These are your calories and this is how you're going to have to handle them, right? You're going to have to decrease them this much or increase them this much if you're trying to put on muscle mass. And we don't just from the scientific perspective, I honestly don't think it's the correct advice. Um, so our macro calculator does not give these uh, stri strict uh, calorie targets. Um, we we try to give people information that's directionally accurate because we're not going to pretend that we can count calories with sufficient accuracy that's going to help them. And I think the calculators that do this do people a great disservice. So we prefer to give people. Uh, very uh, specific um, targets, like how much protein you should be eating. We want to make sure that they reach a minimum amount and that it's high quality because this really, really matters. Like, we don't want people going away thinking that they can fill all their protein needs with beans versus what they could do with you know, eggs, for example. So I think th these really big basic questions have to be addressed first by the macro calculator. And then, of course, that's the, the beauty of the food search engine that you can sort of play around and really see, okay, you know, this is, is, this is great, this is nutrient dense, but I just hate that food. There's no way I'm eating that. So you can straight away shift to something else that's going to be more palatable and that's actually going to give you a chance of, of succeeding. So it's, uh, yeah, it's breaking down the steps and, and making sure people don't start off with the poor advice of calorie counting and, and all that stuff. So in your, your macro calculator, um, do you then list certain foods that would fall into each category to give people some guidance already to say, hey, if you need more fat, mm -hmm. this is, these, these are the foods, or if you need high quality protein, here's a list of the first ones that we would look at? Yeah, so what, what we have at the moment, um, and this is, uh, this is the first version that's, uh, that's came out, and we're gaining a lot of feedback from people who are saying, oh, this would be more useful, and, and let's, let's have that. But what we have at the moment is essentially we're giving people an idea of the recipes that could fit within the goals that they just gave us. So once you've used the calculator, they'll be presented with recipes that fit your goals. I think that's the quickest way for someone to, to get started on the, on the road towards uh, uh, towards their goal. However, we so we have something that um, that we haven't seen anywhere else for the moment, and we're we're really uh, uh, excited about people to to use is uh, what we call this equivalent. So, if you're given a protein target, people usually tell you you should eat um, you know something like 1.5 gram per kilogram of protein, and this is very involved. And most people are are going to 
totally zone out. I think, stop giving me a, a calculus problem to solve. Mm -hmm. Give me something that I can hold in my hand and I have an idea of how much it is and what I can do. So our calculator will give you uh, protein targets in terms of how much that would be if you were counting that in terms of bananas. Uh, sorry, in terms of uh, um, uh, steak example or something like that. And we have the same for the carb limit, right? So that'll be a certain amount of bananas or sweet potatoes or avocados. And the same for the protein. If, if someone needs to know how much they need to eat in a day, it's much easier if they know that's, you know, six eggs rather than 1.3 gram per whatever, right? So the idea is for the calculator to give them uh, uh, a method of quantifying how much they need. That's as simple as possible. And then they can just go and search it in the food calculator and uh, and make sure that they uh, sorry in the food search engine and make sure they they add that. Yeah, I'd say that would be super useful. I mean, that's always been one of my um, issues when you get given specific numbers, as you mentioned there, and you and you just try to think. So, what is that? Like, is it just a single piece of meat, right. and then I'm done for the day, and I'm not going to lose muscle, or do I need to eat like two T bones? I, I'm confused here. So, uh, I yeah. think that would be very practical. And talking about that then with nutrient density and people choosing different diets. So, you know, I guess you could go from vegan to carnivore and use your calculator and your macros here. Um, I'd be interested then too, because a, a big question that comes up, especially if we're, we're staying on a hot topic with the all meat diet or carnivore diet is people wondering, are you going to get enough nutrition from just having ground beef or hamburger patties or something? Um, yep. Would your calculator and uh, your food search engine be able to sort of give people guidance on that? Yeah, so we try to remain as impartial as we can in terms of the different uh, uh, diets that are out there. Now, no one is impartial. I think it's important to recognize that. But our calculator, whichever goal you choose, there will never be a, a um, it will never dissuade you from not having any carbs, meaning people are always free to go zero carb if they if they choose to, and then we simply put limits on how much they on how many carbs they can have according to their goal, whether that's blood sugar control or maybe fat loss, which tends to be aided by a lower carbohydrate diet. So we we give people uh, recommendations, and then within that, we know that people will adjust it according to what's better for them. So in, in that sense, we, we are carnivore friendly, zero carb friendly. There's, there's no doubt about that. And it really does bring up a very interesting question about the government uh, recommendations in terms of nutrient intakes. And are they reliable? Uh, have we gotten the science right? Uh, what are we learning about all this? And I think our food search engine will bring up a lot of questions for a lot of people. When we first released it, um, People were asking us, wait, why is this not more nutrient dense? I thought this was supposed to be a superfood. Like, why, why is uh, kale not top of your list or something? And you have to go through all this process of explaining that depending on how you calculate it and, and, and what your starting beliefs are about what's, what's important, you will find a very different food environment in our calculator than what you could see on a typical uh, government website recommending what's what's essential to you. We don't think whole grains are essential. We don't think you need 150, 130 grams for your uh, carbs for your brain. Um, we don't think that if you don't have fruit, you will be vitamin C deficient. Um, we take the we don't take our advice on authority. We take it on the published literature and, and clinical uh, evidence that we can find to the best of our ability. So we speak with clinicians. 
uh, we speak with patients, we speak with researchers, and we do a lot of you know uh, PubMed investigations. And, and that's how we get to the point where we can tell people that you can be on a nutrient-dense carnivore diet. There is such a thing. Now, if we're question, talking about what's optimal, I don't think anyone knows that yet. We don't know if you need some, you know, offal, some liver or whatever to, to complement that. We don't know if optimal would be a little bit of plants with mostly meat or a lot of plants and a little bit of meat. I think those, those are still open questions to, to some extent. Um, but yes, our calculator and our food search engine will reflect what we take to be the latest science in terms of how much you know, potassium you need, for example. Because um, clearly, if you look at potassium levels in different foods, you'll tend to see they, they're higher in, in vegetables, they're higher in, in, um, in plants. Yet, potassium deficiencies are not a scourge in the carnivore community. They're not even a clinical uh, uh, issue. I mean, I've, I've looked for case reports. I've looked for evidence where you know, a low plant diet brought potassium deficiencies, and I'm, I'm, I'm not finding it. So the day I find a lot of evidence about that, our calculator will reflect that as soon as possible. But until that day comes, we have to stick with the science. And I think this is both interesting, but will also create a lot of, you know, um, sort of contrarians opinions uh, out of that. I'm definitely, I, I can imagine people there thinking, oh, but I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure, no, it must be wrong. Right. And that, so when you're talking numbers here, that also just gets me thinking, when you were developing the food search engine, how easy was it for you to get access to these numbers and how reliable were they across the industry? So I, I'm just, I just wondered, and as a consumer, I would think, but the government has already done all this research. So they already know that mm. um, this type of, like an egg has X, you know, X amount of vitamins, minerals at, at this, at these numbers. Um, but were you finding that maybe that wasn't true or there were certain foods that just no one's ever studied and that you had to go deeper research and find it somewhere else? Yeah. So I have to say, I'm amazed and just astounded at the how poor the quality of data is for our food databases. I mean, this is the stuff that literally everyone in the world has to consume and put into their bodies. The quality of data about what is in that food is really poor. And I think that was one of the shocking things I had to confront when starting the food search engine. Um, was that we already had an idea that things weren't great, essentially, that there was a lot of missing data. But when you really try to put everything together, you realize just how poor the, the data quality is. So what we had to do was gather as many publicly available databases uh, as we could and essentially start to eliminate bad data. So there are a lot of foods which have incomplete or missing data. And some of the data that they have depending on the methods of how it's calculated, really aren't reliable. So it's a lot of grunt work to go through the different methods for, for different vitamins and minerals and amino acids and fatty acids and discard the data. And then you come up essentially with a formula, right? You, you translate how you think of food into a algorithm and you test that algorithm and you see, okay, it's telling me, um, you know, kale has a super uh, high uh, insulin index. Well, that's probably wrong, right? We, we know about that. And then you refine and you go back to it. So it's, uh, it's a continuous project. Um, this this thing gets better and better the more feedback we get and the more databases we integrate. So this is an ongoing project. Um, that's why we're really, we're always asking for feedback because as good as AI can be, there's still a lot of limitations. So you have to rely on some, some common sense uh, feedback as well. 
So it's um, it's difficult because a lot of the higher quality uh, food databases are owned by, um, for example, Walmart or other distributors who, who will have uh, more detail on certain aspects of the food th than others. So this is something we're also working on integrating more and more databases so we have a, a more complete picture. This also changes depending on uh, where you are, if you're in the States versus Europe. Uh, the, the quality of the databases can change. Uh, we have a lot of uh, information from the USDA, but it's only one part of the database we have because if we just relied on that, it really wouldn't be uh, reliable enough. So you have a lot of um, other um, uh, companies who look at the nutritional profile of foods and will just use one database or, or, or might use uh, multiple databases, but they don't really refine them. They just pre present them as is and assume that those numbers are representative of the reality and we we can't take that at face value every time we integrate something we have to refine it and, and try to break it and see okay this is up, up to where it works and before after that it's not going to be very useful so i found that interesting just thinking there that private companies like big conglomerates like walmart are having to do nutritional density testing themselves are they to get that or they can't rely on uh, government labs who should be testing all foods. It's um, or governments also having to rely on private institutions to do the testing for them to feed them the data for their database. Yeah, so that's really really interesting question because there are some things that uh, the food industry has to have tested by third parties or or government parties for questions of impartiality and essentially just to fulfill legal obligations, right? You have to make sure you don't have heavy metal contamination. You have to make sure you know, all of these sort of regulatory things. But the law is really just there to make sure you know, people aren't poisoned for the most part. They're not there to make sure you're getting a nutrient-dense food. Um, I doubt that you know, the, the, the guys working at the food databases at Walmart are looking at nutrient density in the way we are. I think they're looking at one side of the equation. They're saying, okay, our foods have this amount of vitamins, minerals, and amino acids, and that's what you're going to get, and that's it, and that's the story. But in reality, that's not true at all. You have what you take in, then you have a part of that that's not absorbed, so you have to take that into account. Then once you've absorbed that, depending on the form in which this nutrient is, uh, is, uh, is present, you might have to convert it to the uh, um, active version. That's going to uh, cost you in a certain sense. It's going to you know, cost the ATP. It's going to cost energy. It's going to cost enzymes. It's going to lose you uh, what you initially took in. And then in the end, you have to see, okay, how efficient is my body at using this certain nutrient? Is it running through it very fast because I've got a lot of inflammation or I've got some other problems? Or am I using it super efficiently? So in the end, it's really this uh, intake and use equation that uh, Nutrita is focusing on. Whilst food manufacturers generally tend to present this as an uh, accountant would, right? This is my list. This is what you're getting. That's it. But that's not really scientific. So the food industry is not really incentivized to give you a deep analysis of the food. They're incentivized to respect the law and to make their product look as nutrient-dense as it is. And the easiest way to do that is to list things that, are, that have a high intake, but then ignore all the other rest which could change that, that final outcome.
So I want to get on to the insulin index now so that uh, other unique selling points of your product here. How are you able to calculate that number? Because now from what you've just said, I don't think people would be testing that. So how, how do you get that across so many foods? Yeah, so this is, this is um, a bit of a sad story to my mind because I, I'm, I'm just flabbergasted that the dietetics associations aren't using this to advise uh, their diabetics. I think it's, it's a real shame. And what we've done to be able to apply this more widely, we started out with the research that was done on a very limited number of foods. I think this research came out of uh, Australia, actually. And they were looking at um, the responses, uh, the insulin response in people given a certain food or a certain meal, whether that's you know, cereals with milk or an apple or a steak or whatever. So essentially, they, the, these um, authors chose a selection of foods, tested, uh, so gave, fed them to people in these standardized portions, and then measured their insulin. And from there, you basically have lots of dots on a line. You pull a straight line through that. That's, that, that gives you sort of a, a formula, a mathematical formula. And from there, basically every time you... Uh, take the the features of uh, the foods that were tested, how much protein, how much fat they had, how much sugar, and you sort of apply um, those factors to this new food that you want to figure out the insulin index of. You sort of follow the line and boom, you can find its place on the line. And that allows you to predict the insulin index of that food, even though that food wasn't actually tested. Basically, it's sort of like uh, you get a lot of a lot of feedback, and because foods all share these similar features, you can sort of reverse engineer. Okay, knowing all I know about these foods, this food is probably going to give this type of response. Now, this is great in theory, but of course, you have to check if it actually works. Is this really the response people are getting? Can you confirm that? And I think this is where you have to once again get back to feedback from people. You have to get back to some. Uh, testing of the algorithm. And to do that, basically, we looked at the foods that were originally tested. We looked at the features they had, so their macros and their energy content. And the idea is that if the data was good quality enough, it would enable us to make predictions for other foods. Thankfully, we were able to do that. Um, the original index, if you go and look it up in the original studies, is less accurate than ours because we've had the benefit of now you know, refining it with larger and larger databases. So this is, it's once again, a work in progress. And it's uh, hopefully someday we'll be able to uh, fund some trials where we can get people eating uh, these foods and then testing them on themselves and refine it even further. So I think this is absolutely necessary. Our insulin index isn't uh, the final answer for everything insulin for diabetics, but it's uh, damn good and it's better than what's uh, out there at the moment. And this is something that, I mean, personally, it's, it's close to my heart because my grandmother uh, had diabetes. And I remember very well seeing her little uh, notebook where she would write down the, um, the blood glucose that she would measure during the day. And it was just all over the place. And when you know the power of choosing low insulinogenic foods, it's a guarantee that your blood sugar will, will stabilize to some extent. So I think this is really, really important that we get people to think of food in terms of its, of its effect on insulin 
And we need to give them an index to, to start out there and to give them some measure of reliability. So that's, uh, that's another one that's really uh, dear to my heart. Yeah, and I, I find that interesting um, because so people would have heard about glycemic index or glycemic load, and this is completely different. So if you have a low glycemic index food, is it a low insulin index food also? Or is that correlation not always the same? Yeah, that no, that's a, a really important point. So the, the glycemic index essentially is it's sort of like an old phone compared to the insulin index. It does some of the things the new phone does, but just poorly, right? So the glycemic index is going to give you a decent estimate of what might raise your blood sugar. So if you, you know, find a food that's on the glycemic index, it raises your blood sugar. Great. You know you probably shouldn't be eating that food. The problem is you might eat a food and it scores low on the glycemic index and you think, perfect, I can keep eating, eating that food. It's fine. But what you're not seeing is what it's doing to your insulin. So rather than looking at the blood sugar, which could give you the right answer, or, or it could not, right? It has some degree of false positive, what we call false positive. We thought, okay, let's go straight to the insulin. Because if we know the insulin is controlled, this pretty much guarantees that the blood sugar is going to be controlled. So we just chose a different marker because the insulin index is, um, let's say it's more of a general controller of metabolism than purely the blood sugar value it's going to give us. So these, these are just old measures, basically. They're old, outdated measures. That's what dietetics associations have been using for long. They've had their use, um, but I think it's time we recognize how they're limited. And when we have an alternative, we should, we should really be pushing it because it's not just um, uh, you know, a question of getting people to, to use our score. It's a question of getting people accurate information about their health. And I think that's, that gives them sort of added responsibility in these things. And I'm just thinking, you know, you're going to have some people who uh, have to use a continuous glucose monitor because they're type 1 diabetic, or you're going to even just have people who are experimenting with their health to see, hey, I want to wear it for two weeks and see what my typical diet does to my, my glucose levels in my blood. And so in this case here, it just also gets me wondering, uh, would I see a difference then if I, say, ate low GI uh, foods for a week but versus low insulin index foods for a week and what the continuous glucose monitor is showing me? Yeah, you would probably see a difference. Um, now, it would depend on the foods that you're choosing because you could technically choose a range of foods that are both uh, low glycemic index and low insulin index, and you'd get good results on both. But we know in the, in the real world, when, where these indices are tested out with CGMs or others, we see that people will make a lot of mistakes for them. It'll be a low uh, glycemic index food, but their CGM will, will show a nice big spike. And unfortunately, it's, it's hard to, to understand why. We think that it has to do with microbiome. We, it, we know it has to do with how full your glycogen levels are. So there are all these factors that the glycemic index won't be able to take into account. Um, and, uh, and you, and you brought up a good point about the CGMs because we were, we were thinking exactly along the same lines as you. That's why we started a, a project to crowdfund, uh, some, some CGMs for our users, because we want to actually get people to, to, uh, get feedback that everyone can see, right? This isn't just internal for our team. This is also for the users and for people out there who can see, okay, when you use the insulin index, you really are getting an additional stability of blood sugars and, this is, of course, important in type 2 diabetics, but it's 
all the more important for type 1 diabetics. And, and those are where I think you get the really impressive results because the type 1 diabetics are dosing their insulin. So they're already thinking in terms of insulin and not only blood sugars. The blood sugars are how they're verifying what they're using to actually make their decision. And that's the sort of thing we would like people to see with our index, that you use the index and you see the benefits in your blood sugar. Yeah. And again, I'm just thinking of <clears throat> even people who are <clears throat> not diabetic, but they're trying to get metabolically healthy. So someone who is carrying excess weight and they feel, hey, look, I've gone ketogenic or I've gone low carb and it, I still, I just can't lose the weight for whatever reason. But maybe I'm thinking here as a problem solving, they could look at their foods in your food calculator and go, oh, I actually thought it was low carb and, and low GI, but actually it has a very high insulin index. And maybe that's one aspect of this that I need to address or is changing the types of food that I'm eating, what I thought were good on, on this way of eating. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's going to be a, a continuous process of thinking, you know, I thought this was going to happen, but I actually noticed something else. And that's of course where, where each of us learn in those cases. And, and I'll give you an example of that. When, when people go through our food search engine, they might see some foods which have a pretty good keto score, but aren't particularly low on the insulin index. And I think, I know that it's confusing for some people. It was confusing to me when I, when I first learned about it uh, years back, because you, you're told that insulin, if your insulin is low, your ketones will be high. And, when, when, and, and that's what you're looking for. So how can it be that certain foods stimulate your insulin pretty pretty strongly yet you can remain ketogenic and i think this is this is a level of nuance that we're going to have to bring to our uh, to our tools to get people to grasp that but for for now what we've done is to that's why we always want to show the scores together to to let people know that yeah this might not be the lowest insulin food but it's still going to be uh, allow it's going to still going to allow you to be in, in ketosis and, you know, that's going to be important for people to figure out if they're, you know, whether they're biohacking or diabetics. Like you said, it's not just about uh, uh, diabetics or people controlling their blood sugars. If, if a biohacker is trying to keep their, uh, his, his or her insulin low because they're trained for a marathon and they want to be, become really good at fat burning, yeah, it will be important to choose foods that are relatively low in the, on the insulin index. And, and hopefully they'll realize that they can do that with foods that, you know, stimulate insulin, maybe 30, 35%, yet they keep you in ketosis. So, uh, you know. Yeah. And I'm just wondering, do you have an example of a food that surprised you like that, that was um, high on the keto, keto score, but also then relatively high on the insulin index? Because I'm just thinking some people going, what, what's a good example of that? Maybe I'm eating that. Yeah. Um, well, you could take, I think the easiest example would be uh, just a, a ribeye. To be, to be honest, I mean, a ribeye, it's going to be, um, depending on the cut and all of that and how fatty it is, so let's just say beef uh, for simplicity, it'll be above 30, 35%, depending on the, on the exact cut. So it'll be relatively insulinogenic. But we know that there are other things going on in, in metabolism that don't uh, bring the same consequence as would another food. Uh, like let's say potato chips that might be relatively low in the insulin index, yet isn't giving you uh, this positive metabolic response. And so it was. It surprised me initially uh, to try to figure out. Okay, wait. 
beef is stimulating my insulin, but it's not shutting off fat burning and it's allowing me to be in ketosis. So how does it work? And you basically come to realize that food is much more than one score. That's why we have a per minimum three scores at once, because we know you have to, you have to give some context to them. Um, I think another surprising food was uh, oysters because they have a, a few grams of net carbs in them, actually, just from the, the nitro gly uh, glycogen content. So uh, at first, our uh, food search engine got uh, tripped up on that somewhat. And that's where you realize, okay, this is the corner cases where we have to refine our, our searches. But that's good because, you know, that's where we learn. And, and you know, you realize that um, some exceptions to the rule really uh, teach you about, about the food. So the last thing we want to do is to, to dissuade people from eating oysters, right? Um, just because it's got, you know, five grams of net carbs in a, in a serving or something. But uh, hopefully that'll come through, you know, the educational efforts that we have around the, the content as well. And I mean, you have to realize that, you know, food is very, very complex. I mean, it's more complex than pharmacology and pharmacology, you know, uh, requires billions of dollars of research. So food is no less complex and much more so, I would say. So, yeah, there are loads of these interesting corner cases examples. And, uh, and I think that's why we need to focus on these sort of measures more and more because they're going to really improve our, our general picture of food. Mm. And again, you, I think you summarized that really well because food is and nutrition is so complex. Um, and I think that's why I like <clears throat> speaking to people like you to just introduce someone who isn't uh, a clinician or a researcher to go, look, it, it's so confusing from the methodologies to the technologies to the reference ranges to whatever, you know, even countries use different things. Uh, so how is a lay person who's just trying to stay healthy understand like what is the most nutrient best food for me and uh you know the numbers and every all the questions that come up with it but i can see your your um your search engine and your calculator definitely helping to solve a big problem in the community there just to try and simplify things but still give you access to the back door to the more geeky stuff as we mentioned earlier yeah and look to be perfectly honest this is not something anyone can do by themselves i mean there's a reason where uh, at least four people in my team working on this all the time uh, to make it as good as we can. And we need, that's, that's why I'm on Twitter or on Facebook and speaking with researchers and, and clinicians and, and not only people with qualifications, anyone who has some valuable insight to give on this because it, it truly is, I think, uh, a project that's a bit bigger than all of us to figure out what's in our food system and how to best navigate it. I think it's a massive, uh, it's a massive personal problem for people, but it's also really um, a communal problem as well. I think it's uh, we have uh, you know people in this space like you and I who communicate about nutrition, about science, and about health. Um, even when we try to remain impartial and give people advice, I think we still have a, a responsibility to to represent the nuance and complexity in the matter, but also. Uh, you know, keep things as simple as we can. And I think the, the, the point of what I love about biohacking, it's really sort of first admitting how little you know, and that's why you're doing the experiment. So that's, a, I think, a wonderful thing of, of biohacking. And, and hopefully these tools will give people, you know, just something else in the toolbox to play around with and to, and to track and, and test all of this. Because uh, our calculator and food search engine are the, the heart of what we're doing. And this will be in a uh, web app that we'll be releasing in, in about two months. Um, so people 
will be able to track all of these things that we're talking about because it's how these things evolve over time that really matter. That's where you get uh, actual benefits and, and progress. So hopefully that will give people more information um, and hopefully inspire a few others to say, hey, if, if this person can do it, here's their data, this is how they did it, I can do the same. And if we more people we can influence in that sense, the better. Perfect. So Rafi, um, if someone wants to follow you to keep up to date with your workings or um, go to start using the search engine, what are the links that you would suggest to them? Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter. I'm uh, at Raphael S7. So that's R-A-P-H-A-E-L S7. Uh, I'm pretty active there. I'm on Facebook as well. And I have to update my name on Facebook. <laughs> it's pretty confusing. But my name on Facebook is Rafi, R-A-P-I-H-I, CERT, S-I-R-T. And otherwise, they can just go to, to our website. So that's https dot, uh, slash slash nutrita.app. So let's make that simpler, nutrita.app. Um, and we also have a Facebook group. So you can find us in the Nutrita community. So we post studies there and discuss, uh, um, you know, discuss some some papers and try to bring some advice to people. So those are the the main uh, main places. Oh, and we've got the uh, Nutrita underscore app. So at Nutrita underscore app on Twitter as well. Perfect. Uh, so we post a lot of stuff there. Yeah, and I'll link to all that in the show notes for everyone. Um, I just want to say thank you for sharing all that knowledge today. I really enjoyed that. Um, yeah, again, I can see your app becoming very popular in the low-carbon ketogenic community. And who knows, we may even see Twitter wars where people end up <laughs> referencing, hey, you said you eat that, and I've just gone to the Nutrita search engine and look at the data here, and you're, you're, you, you know, you're uh, deficient in this. Or uh, could, you're going to open up a whole yeah. can of worms here too, but it's going to be good, uh, good communication. So again, Rafi, thanks so much for sharing that information today. Thank you so much, Gary, and uh, congratulations on the podcast. It's uh, it's been uh, really inspiring to see how how far you've taken it. Great, thanks. Thank you. Uh -huh.